So I went and talked to like probably 50, 60 investors and everyone said, yeah, you know, come back, talk to me at another time, but I just don't get it. 99% of them said, I just don't get it. I was introduced to this guy named Todd Wagner. who was working in a class with my, my girlfriend at the time. She was in this class called Running From The Law. And it was for attorneys that wanted to get out of the legal system. You know, so this counselor was basically counseling attorneys that had had enough of doing their legal work and were trying to say, here's my way of getting it back into life in some way. So Todd was in that class and she introduced me to him. And the, the idea was, hey, is this something you might want to get involved in, Todd? He was a CPA and an attorney, and it seemed like it could be something that he could help organize and put his skills around because I knew I needed legal support to do what I was doing fundamentally because all my deal was going to be was a bunch of contracts. If I could write good contracts, I could have a real company. Then I also knew that if I had a CPA that was doing the combination of a legal and accounting, it could create that business foundation that I could grow a business from, which is something a lot of entrepreneurs just don't get. It was a lot of it was because my dad was a banker and he, he really gave me unknowingly the essence of that financial and legal framework you need to create something that's real. Otherwise, you're just a guy with an idea. So Todd was perfect. He had those pieces of the puzzle, but he was just getting out of something he'd been doing for three or four years. He goes, I like the idea. I'm going to take three months off. I'll come back, talk to you when I'm back. But before I go, I want to introduce you to this friend of mine I went to college with named Mark Cuban. He just sold his software integration company called Microsolutions. He's got cash and he might be the kind of guy that would understand this. So we all meet at California Pizza Kitchen on Northwest Highway and <laughs> Preston Road in Dallas, Texas on November 3rd, 1994. And basically I'm giving my pitch that I've given a hundred times expecting the usual blah, 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 the guy not to understand anything that's going on. Within five minutes, Mark says, I'm in, I'll do it. I'm your partner. So I go, wow, you know, I never got to that part of my pitch. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know what to say at that point. I go, well, well, what do we do now, you know? What they did was build a media company called Broadcast.com that eventually sold to Yahoo for $5.7 billion. Well, that's what Mark Cuban and Todd Wagner did. The person you just heard is Chris Jabe. He's the man who actually started the company. He wouldn't stick around long after Mark took over, but the initial work he did was the foundation on which the rest of the company's legendary success was built. Are you ready to hear the story? Let's get dialed in. Welcome to Webmasters. This is the podcast that teaches about entrepreneurship by talking with some of the internet's most impactful innovators. I'm Aaron Dinan, your host. I'm a serial entrepreneur and I'm part of the faculty in the Innovation and Entrepreneurship Program at Duke University. On this episode, we're gonna dig into one of the legendary successes of the early web. It's the story of Broadcast.com, which was Mark Cuban's ticket to entrepreneurial stardom. And while Mark certainly deserves all the recognition and praise he gets for what he built, as well as the things he's done since, he wasn't technically the person who founded the original company. That honor belongs to this episode's guest, Chris Jabe. We're gonna learn all about him and how he laid the foundation for what would become Broadcast.com. But first, we're gonna learn about this podcast's sponsor. 
Webmasters wouldn't be possible without the support of our sponsor, Latonas. Latonas is a boutique mergers and acquisitions broker that helps people buy and sell cash flow positive internet businesses and digital assets. Those include things like e-commerce stores, SaaS apps, Amazon FBAs, domain portfolios, and any other type of online work from anywhere internet business. If you have a profitable internet business like that and you're thinking of selling it, even if you're not sure you're ready yet, contact the team at Latona's. They've been helping people just like you for a long time. They'll be able to give you great advice and guidance. And when you're ready, they're the folks who can help you get top dollar. Also, if you're interested in buying an internet business, Latona's can help you too. Their website is full of listings for profitable internet businesses you can buy right now. That website is latonas.com. L-A-T-O-N-A-S dot com. In my intro at the beginning of this and a lot of Webmasters episodes, I describe myself as a serial entrepreneur. It's really just a way of saying I've tried starting lots of businesses and, you know, some have turned out better than others. In reality, the words entrepreneur and serial entrepreneur are basically interchangeable because I guarantee anyone who built a successful business has tried building more than one. That's certainly true of this episode's guest, Chris Jabe. He's like a textbook example of a serial entrepreneur, constantly iterating on new business ideas and learning as much as he could after each success and failure. As a result, the story of creating the company that would ultimately become Broadcast.com isn't really the story of Chris having a single brilliant idea and then executing it to perfection. Instead, the story begins much earlier and takes the form of lots of different ventures, the first of which was a car business. I had like a 20,000 square foot warehouse when I was 24 years old with my best friend and we imported gray market cars from Europe, BMWs, Mercedes, and Porsches. We knew nothing about the business. The more business we did, the more money we lost. It's the best crash course in what not to do in business in two years' time you could ever imagine. So after two years, I was like a half million dollars in debt, plus we hadn't paid our payroll taxes at all. <laughs> and the guy came in, the IRS agent said, okay, you owe us a half million dollars. When are you going to pay? And we go, oh, no problem. We'll pay you like over the next six to nine months. He goes, no, you need to pay me in the next 10 days. Or we're going to close you down. And my partner and I looked at each other. We go, is this the business we want to be in for the next five or 10 years? Or do we, do we want to think about something else? Yes, the necessity of paying taxes is an important lesson every entrepreneur learns at some point. Hopefully most of us don't learn it the same way Chris had to. Of course, leaving the car business would ultimately be good for him, but success didn't come immediately. In fact, Chris spent a lot of time after that experience wandering through the proverbial entrepreneurial wilderness. So at that point, we became very clear to us we did not need to be in the car business for the rest of our lives. And I just sort of stopped at 26 and started for like three years just reading, learning, you know, really voraciously reading about things I was curious about and interested in. Not really having a job per se. I had a friend that was an artist and I took his t-shirts basically <laughs> to small boutiques at the time around New York and Boston, just traveled the country and was selling t-shirts for a while. I was just doing anything I could just to make a buck to live on basically. 
And then what came to me was I, I would meet with this guy. It was really cool. He was a colonel in Vietnam. You know, he just got out of the army and he had his own data company. Or it was like a spreadsheet company. They would do budget analysis for companies. And he had one of the leading edge at the time, little software sort of integration companies. And he would meet with me every week. I would meet him at Denny's at like 6.30 in the morning. And we would just talk about ideas. Did any companies come out of that? After about a year and a half, we came up with this idea as huge into sports. Me and my friends would watch every sport, baseball, football, basketball, and we were just fanatics. You know, we'd play them all day, we'd watch them all night, and it was just sort of what we did. So what we came up with is because I wanted to get into the sports business somehow, I was trying to think of like a promotional item I could sell to a sports team. And we came up with this palm-sized balls that were AM radios that were shaped like a baseball or a basketball. And we put Dallas Mavericks on one side and Dr. Pepper on the other side. And the first 5,000 people to come into the stadium would be like a promotional item from the team just to incite you know, more people to come to the games. So I did that for about a year and a half. I got the Chicago Bulls and Sportsmart. I had Dallas Mavericks and Dr. Pepper and a few other teams. Those seem like some impressive partnerships. It sounds like that business was going pretty well then, right? It really became apparent to me really quick that the bigger boys could source that product quicker than I could and easier than I could. They had better relationships with the teams. And I was going to be out of business in no time. So what I started thinking is I need to figure out a way to get the rights to basically distribute a product outside of the stadium and figure out a way I could sell because you had to get a licensed arrangement with the teams or the leagues to do that. So I, I found this guy in New York City that had a micro ear radio. And he was broadcasting the games inside these stadiums. And what my problem was when I'd give these radios away, and it was the same thing he was running into, is people would get a, a nice radio or a pretty cheap nice radio. <laughs> in, in the stadium, they'd try to turn it on. They couldn't hear anything, and they never thought it was working. But it was only because the signal wasn't getting inside the stadium. So he and I put a plan together where we'd say, you know what? Why don't we make it so we rebroadcast every NBA game in every arena when you put our radio on, you could hear not only the game that you're at, but you could hear any other game that's being played at the time. What you're hearing here is the core of the idea that would ultimately become Broadcast.com, which started as the ability to broadcast sporting events across alternate media platforms. But it wasn't quite the right time for the idea just yet, in part because Chris hadn't found the right partners. After a really short period of time, because I'd been in the car business and realized how shady characters and lack of dependability and craziness does not add to quality of long-term business opportunity, it, this guy was not really very aligned with the things I knew to be true. <laughs> so, he had one investor that came in one time and he needed money to live on. He wanted to get his business going. He would like bring these guys in that were like mafia guys that were just the worst of the worst. And I'd look at these guys in a heartbeat because of where I'd been in the car business and say, I cannot do this. And they would sense it. They knew I knew that they were not the kind of guys that we were going to do business with anyway. One guy tried to throw me off the top of a building one time. It's like, are you kidding me? Just because he knew that I was not going to be part of it and I wasn't going to let this guy invest in it. So after a short period of time, I said, I'm out of here. You go do your thing. I do mine. Almost thrown off of a building. Yeah, that doesn't sound much like the kind of people worth partnering with. So Chris left New York and moved back to Dallas, Texas, 
where he started working for a company called Affiliated Computer Systems. What those guys did was, there's a thing called outsourcing, still is to some degree, where a big computer company runs data centers and they go to other companies and say, rather than you run your computers, we'll run your computers. And so I started working at an entry-level sort of promotional marketing guy for those guys. And in a really short period of time, I was writing contracts and understanding how they were writing contracts to basically take over third-party data centers for big companies like Southland Corporation, 7-Eleven, all over the world. And what they ended up doing is they acquired a satellite network as part of their agreement. And that satellite network that we we're always trying to sell time on because it was never even being used. It was like 10% of capacity. So in a really short period of time, I got the math. And when every contract I was learning, the cost of moving really large and small amounts of data in real time around the world. And I did the math sort of realized, oh, they're digitizing video. Oh, they're digitizing audio. Oh, I could take one bandwidth, you know, one channel of video in a broadcast satellite environment. And if I put four kilohertz into six megahertz of video spectrum, I could get like four or five hundred channels of real time audio distributed all over the world. For like 10 grand a month, I could own that bandwidth for a certain number of hours a day in a way that could be super cheap to do it. Okay, I suppose that's interesting to know, but what does one do with that kind of information once they know it? I put a proposal together to the NBA, Major League Baseball, and NFL, and said, if I put this network together, would you let me retransmit their signals? And they said, we'd support it because we love the idea of getting signals all over the world, but the rights holders own those rights. We don't own those. So you have to go to the individual teams. So that's what I started doing. I would go to the rights holders of all the radio stations for every team, and they knew nothing about the internet. And I'm basically, <laughs> I'm basically telling them, you might not have anybody around the world that's listening. You could tell everybody that your signal is getting all over the world. And if this does turn around, we start making money. I'll share whatever we create with you, 50%, and you can back out of the contract whenever you want. Two weeks notice and you're out. So it was something they could use as a promotional tool. I'd figured out enough of talking to those guys what it would take to sit and get them to say yes. What kind of teams were you getting the broadcast rights for? So I got the Dallas Cowboys station. I got the USC, all their events. I got about 15 contracts together, but I couldn't get any investor to really say, oh, I get what you're doing. I'm willing to help you build it out because it was just so far out there. Basically, there wasn't an internet standard for the audio even at that time. And at that time, I wasn't even thinking of doing it on the internet. I was going to basically take signals, retransmit them into local areas, and then redistribute them through the PCS phone network. So you would have an old-style cellular telephone, and you would dial a number, a 900 number, and you'd pay per minute to listen to the games that we retransmitted locally, which was a lot of work. But for the diehard fans that want to hear some of these games that were otherwise not available, it was better than nothing. And paying 10 bucks for a game really wasn't that big a deal, I thought. So after about a year working on that, I went to the FCC, actually, and got the right to set that system up in Austin, Texas. They called it like an experimental license. They gave me a right to redistribute all these signals in a UHF spectrum. So how did that turn into what Broadcast.com became known for, which was broadcasting sports on specifically the internet? Within two months of me getting that, 
I became aware of the internet. This is like late 1993-94. And I started reading George Gilder. George is a really leading-edge thinker about digitization of the world. And he was really understanding that the faster the chip processing speeds got, the more data we could send in smaller bandwidth, meaning you could compress and decompress faster and you could get smaller amounts of data in a really small amounts of bandwidth. But fundamentally what that told me was, no matter what my cost of distributing a signal is today, in 1993, his book just proved the case that over time, technology was gonna make every part of that equation almost go to zero. And it's exactly what's happened. You know, basically, don't worry about your cost of distributing audio and video in 1994. Get your rights, build your business. And then from that, over time, if you stay in business long enough, you're going to see your cost decrease to the point where you're going to make money just on that difference. It's pretty significant. So basically, I started putting a plan together where I would use the Internet rather than this third-party system. But there was no software to distribute the audio on the Internet. Basically, I was saying, OK, I'm going to develop an audio software and I'm going to create an environment that's going to make it possible to put all this stuff online. It's at this point that Chris gets introduced to Mark Cuban through a shared acquaintance named Todd Wagner, which is the story we heard at the beginning of the episode. We all meet at California Pizza Kitchen on Northwest Highway and <laughs> Preston Road in Dallas, Texas on November 3rd, 1994. And basically, I'm giving my pitch that I've given 100 times, expecting the usual blah, 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 the guy not to understand anything that's going on. Within five minutes, Mark says, I'm in. I'll do it. I'm your partner. So I go, wow. You know, I never got to that part of my pitch. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't know what to say at that point. I go, well, well, what do we do now, you know? So what did you all decide to do? So he goes, I'm going to give you 10 grand, and I got some stuff I got to do right now, but when Todd comes back, we'll figure out what's next. Mark gave me that check. On that check, it said 10% for 2% non-dilutable interest in the company. So when Todd sees that, he goes, we can't do that, dude. If he already owns 2% of the company on Dululu, that means when we bring other money into this company, he's going to own 2% no matter what. That's not fair. It doesn't work. So Todd and I go over to Mark's house for about three months. Every Wednesday, we just haggle with him. <laughs> As you can imagine, he, every, everybody's got their attitude. He thinks one thing, I think another. And we're all just yelling at each other half the time. The other time, we're just trying to figure it out. In the middle of that, Real Audio software comes out. Real Audio was created by a company called Real Networks in 1995. It was a groundbreaking audio streaming format that first made streaming accessible over the internet. Now we don't even have to make software. All we got to do is take programming, use their encoding system, and distribute it. And everybody can use that same on the receiving side so they can hear it. So Mark says, I'm doing it with or without you guys. Chris, I don't need you. Todd, you're perfect. You're an attorney, you're an accountant. You can run the company, you're the operator. And Todd goes, that's not going to work. Chris and I are partners. We're going to work a deal with Chris where he can have what's fair and we'll go from there. What was your feeling about Mark moving forward on the idea either with you or without you? You know, to me, it was just another idea. I had 10 other ideas like that I was ready to go on. So I go, you know what? I'm not that interested in this one. <laughs> if you guys want to take it, I'll take 10% of the deal. Give me $2,500 a month 
as a draw until we figure out what's next and we'll go from there. So for about two years, I get $2,500 a month. I go and teach people acquire broadcast rights. Basically, I teach people at broadcast.com how to do that. And out of that $2,500, I took $1,250 and paid a software guy to develop EADS, which was the first fee-per-click advertising company on the net. What you just heard Chris explain doubles as the fundamental truth of entrepreneurship. Ideas are worthless by themselves. To Chris, the company he was fighting Mark for was just another idea of many. What matters is execution. So he gave away the idea that would become Broadcast.com while turning his attention to his newly created advertising company. In other words, Broadcast.com wasn't successful because Chris had a good idea, Broadcast.com was successful because of Mark Cuban's execution. I got 10% of the company. I had the option of having more if I was going to work full time, but Mark never wanted to make it look like I existed because he wanted to be perceived as the founder. It was his approach more just to say, I'm going to acknowledge that you started this company, but beyond that, nobody even knows you happened, which to me was fine. I have no negative energy around it whatsoever because the reality was as Mark came in, he put a ton of money into it, blew it up, and it made my ex go to, who knows, 100x, 2000x. I am very supportive of everything Mark did to get it going. Yeah, obviously it doesn't sound like you're taking credit. The, the company doesn't become what it becomes without Mark. In no way, shape, or form. Mark was super progressive, and the guy was brilliant, and still is from a business development perspective. He was really good at just startup 101, because what he did really well was, like, he really boiled it down to basics. He would f*** with us. He'd say, you guys got startup company-itis. <laughs> you guys got the disease of making it look pretty. You just got to go get your f***ing first customer. Go get your first customer, and then get your second one. You learn from the first, you make it easier to get your second. It seems so... Yeah, simple. But the reality was when you're an entrepreneur, you do those things you love. You don't do the things you need to do to get your first customer. So Mark Cuban launches an internet radio company called AudioNet. It's the company that started as Cameron Audio Networks when it was founded by Cameron Christopher Jabe, our guest. It's the company that eventually became Broadcast.com, and it's the company that ultimately sold to Yahoo for $5.7 billion in 1999, making it Yahoo's most expensive acquisition and turning Mark Cuban into a billionaire. As for Chris and his 10%, Obviously, it got diluted along the way, but he still came out all right in the end. Fast forward 1999, Broadcast.com goes public and has one of the best public offerings at that time in the history of the stock exchange. And it puts me in a situation where it's like, what do I really want to do with my life? I went from having nothing really to now having enough from my advertising company to do pretty good to now with broadcast stock going public, never really having to work again. It really went really quick from who am I, what am I doing, to what are my priorities, and what do I really want in life. So that's what happened in 1999, basically. The internet stock went so sky high after it went public, it sold to Yahoo. And my idea at the time was to sell a certain remaining half of my stock years down the road, 
but I just sold it all because I felt like it was such a freak of nature that any of that was happening. And surprisingly, not surprisingly enough, six months later, the whole thing just crashed. So if I would have held on to my stock, I would end up with probably one fiftieth of their cash. And I would have been just another working guy. So do you think it was just luck that you decided to sell all your stock? A lot of it, I believe, was because of the lack of greed. You know, every bit of that was a freak of nature and a bunch of luck at some level. But there was a lot of work that took to get there. But at the end of the day, to set your limit on what's good enough is huge, I think, in business in general. Because otherwise, we always want more rather than realizing when enough is enough. And if we have enough, we're going to do fine. And I think if we have that approach and that level of consciousness and contentment, it makes life a lot easier. And it makes you a lot more uh, satisfied as you move through your life rather than always feeling like you need more to be okay. I don't know where I got that from. It was probably just sort of something that was part of a past life. I didn't need to become more to be good enough because I think there's an also another part and as you go forward, it's like, I really lost my desire to make more tech stuff, to make more money, to have more money. I just literally sold everything I had. I put all my money in bonds. So I wasn't even in the internet or even in the stock world in any shape or form. The most conservative form of investment. Got married and moved to Kauai and had two kids for the next you know, 13, 14 years of my life. And just totally checked out. It's easy to write off Chris's story as a case of right place, right time. He sold an interesting idea to a really good entrepreneur who was able to turn it into an enormous success, and Chris was able to passively ride that success to millions of dollars and a nice retirement in Hawaii. But let's look more closely. First of all, the company that became Broadcast.com wasn't Chris's first idea. Remember, he had a gray market car dealership. He was selling a friend's t-shirts in New York. There was the branded radio giveaways at sporting events. And let's not forget about whatever company it was that almost caused him to get thrown off of a building. So it's not like he just lucked into millions of dollars. Chris spent a solid 20 years putting in hard work and learning the skills he needed in order to become successful. Perhaps the best example is the advertising company he began building from the money Mark was paying him. It was a company called eAds, E-A-D-S, and it was a pioneer in digital advertising. Out of that 2,500, I took 1,250 and paid a software guy to develop eAds, which was the first fee-per-click advertising company on the net. Exactly what DoubleClick was doing. We were right there at the exact same time, but they were still selling on an impression basis when I was selling on a fee-per-click basis. They actually had the, uh, I don't know if it's the trademark, the copyright or whatever, they owned the right to do the fee-per-click piece. So I was always concerned, even though I had started it, had it in operation. So I felt like that was going to give me that I had the business precedence of doing it, not just saying I had a trademark on it. So anyway, that was a separate issue. After about a year and a half, I stopped working at Broadcast.com and the internet advertising company just took off because needless to say, fee-per-click compared to traditional cost per thousand impression for advertisers was a no-brainer. And we were proving our numbers. You know, I'd go to people and say, 
okay, Adobe, okay, Microsoft, I'll send you 2,000 people. You know you're going to sell out to those, and you think I will guarantee, I can give you those people on the front end and just show you what the numbers are, and you cannot help but buy advertising me on the back end. So it was the easiest sell you could imagine. So that was what, 1996, 1997? It was pretty early for a pay-per-click web advertising company, right? So, you know, the interesting part about that whole deal was that was one of the first advertising companies online. So I was literally having to go learn how to make an ad banner and tell an advertising company how we needed to make this really small file size-wise, which made no sense to these guys whatsoever, so that it could be clicked on and it wouldn't create so much overhead when somebody clicks on it that bogged the system down, you know? Then I had to go get a software guy to basically monitor all the clicks and to keep people from trying to cheat the system. Because as soon as we would put an ad up on Joe Blow's sports site, Joe Blow starts clicking on it because he knows every time he clicks on that and he doesn't get caught, he's making money. So we were the early stages. I'm sure the same thing Kevin was doing too, was learning how to find the fraud. I mean, we were sending two, five, ten thousand $10,000 checks to these little kids in Romania and in Russia and China. And some of these guys were cheaters, but some of them had developed these really smart little web environments that were badass. So it was a great early stages of the internet, sort of seeing how the system works. And it was sort of was a really cool comment on human nature. Because what would happen is people would cheat a little bit and they wouldn't get caught. And then they'd cheat a little bit more. And then they cheat and then they would get hungry, you know? So it's like it was so cool for us just to see the nature of man in some way where they'd get a little bit and they'd get greedy. If they never got greedy, they probably could have kept it low enough where we'd have kept paying them for a long time. But anyway, it was after a really short period of time, we, we ended up developing a, like a really smart algorithm that would catch cheaters, toss them out of the system, and we create a really clean way of sending really high quality clicks to advertisers. It's what made us unique. It's what created the value for our service. And what happened to that company? Did you just shut it down once you got your big broadcast.com payout? I just closed it down. I could have sold it, but it's like, to me, when the internet bubble crashed, it was going to be twice as hard to sell all the advertising. And I didn't need the grind and I had enough money. I just paid everybody in the company really well. And we said, you know, it was a great four-year run. It's time to figure out what's next. And I even gave them all the opportunity. If you guys want to build this and grow this at this time, I'll give it to you. You know, I don't need it. They didn't feel that they had the expertise to want to do it. So they pretty much just folded in like 2002. So it almost sounds like had the broadcast.com stuff not happened, eads could have still have gone on to be a huge success. I agree. It would have been more like a double click because we were a little bit more leading edge. They were doing more traditional stuff because they had the bigger advertisers and they were really working from the cost impression down to the fee per click. I was probably working more from the fee-per-click into almost like a cost-per-sale model, which I still feel like has a lot more value than the than either one of the others because you, at the end of the day, I would much rather prove that I can create a transaction than just create an identity unless people want branding, you know, which is a totally different deal. What Chris is talking about here is a pay-per-action advertising model which in the late 90s would have really made eAds one of the first companies operating in what ultimately has become an enormously profitable industry. What this tells us is that, 
while we obviously can't know for sure what would have happened to Chris's advertising company in some sort of alternate timeline that doesn't include Broadcast.com's huge success, it seems fair to say Chris's luck wasn't entirely a fluke. After all, by the time he got his big payout for Broadcast.com, he was already operating a profitable business that was at the leading edge of another huge market. And for what it's worth, Chris still managed to make some good money off of eAds, which, remember, was spelled E-A-D-S and owned the domain name eAds.com. Aerodynamic Defense Systems. We had the URL eAds.com. So we were out of business, now it's 2009, 2010, and we knew that EADS was the URL they wanted. They came, they offered us like a million dollars for it, like in 2005, we go, nah, we aren't gonna sell. But then, like five years later, we're out of business, they're thinking, why don't we sell it back to them? And we offered it to them, they go, nah, we're not interested. Then my software guys go, why don't we make it a porn site? It'll make them want to buy it because everybody's going to go thinking it's them, but it's important. Within two weeks, they offer us two million bucks. <laughs> okay, so maybe that extra two million dollars he made off of e-ads was mostly luck. You know, plus a little creativity too, I suppose. Either way, it took a lot of work to get to that point, along with one other really important factor. It was me having faith in me, you know? It was me believing it was possible. That was the only thing that made it possible for me to believe that when I was first learning about data transmission, that I could come up with a company that could make it possible for anybody in the world to hear anything in real time globally. To believe that I wanted it enough to know that other people wanted it and to have the faith that I could figure it out. And I think that's true with any entrepreneur. They have to believe in themselves enough to know that they can learn as they go and they can put the pieces of the puzzle together. You know, if you don't have that confidence or that faith, I feel like you just sort of never really get going. Belief in yourself. According to Chris Jabe, that belief, more so than an idea or skill or luck, is what's most critical for entrepreneurial success. After listening to a story, what do you think? Let us know. We love hearing from our listeners. You can find us on Twitter. We're at WebmastersPod. Or message me. I'm at Aaron Dinan. That's A-A-R-O-N-D-I-N-I-N. You can also find lots of other articles and content about startups and entrepreneurship over on my website, AaronDinan.com. I'd like to thank Chris Jabe for taking the time to speak with us and share his story. He's actually come out of his semi-retirement slash seclusion recently and has begun working with young entrepreneurs. I've got to say, even though we couldn't fit it into the episode, during our conversation, Chris had some incredible insights about sales and customer acquisition. So he's worth talking to if you're looking for some great mentorship also worth talking to, especially if you're interested in buying or selling an internet business, is the team at Latonas. Remember, you can reach them at latonas.com. Before we wrap up, I also want to make sure I thank Ryan Higgs, our audio engineer, for his work pulling together this episode. And one final thanks to all of you for listening. To be sure you get the next episode as soon as it's released, don't forget to subscribe to Webmasters on your favorite podcasting app. If you do, I promise you'll hear from us again in just a few days. Until then, 
time for me to sign off. Goodbye.